Welcome to the garden. And if you need a Bible, um, you can raise your hand. Uh, Jen can get you one of our blue Bibles. Um, and you can turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. And we are in our third part in this series on uh, Jonah, the book of Jonah. And uh, two weeks ago, we, we, we began the series and we saw this rebellious prophet running from the call to go to Nineveh. Uh, Israel was in a relative time of peace and prosperity. Actually, it was in a very much so a time of peace and prosperity. And Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because Nineveh was a violent city and it was not Israel. And so he decided to flee the opposite direction, direction to Tarshish. And then we begin to examine how we in our own lives are running, often through apathy, turning away. We're turning our face. We're prone to wander from the God that we love. And uh, so then last week, we kind of explored this uh, deeper question, how, how do you turn back? Because for many of us, we would like to turn back uh, to God. We even like the idea of it, but frankly, we don't want to do what God wants us to do, and uh, so we feel like turning back may just be impossible for us. And if you missed last week, you can check it out online um, as we really explored this this question and uh, the reality that uh, repentance isn't doing, it's not just doing the things that God wants you to do, but it's turning to the cross. It's turning to the beauty of the cross. And, uh, and that's where we begin. But this week we are now moving back into this, this place of doing what God wants you to do. Because repentance always brings about fruit. And so we are in Jonah chapter 3. And uh, we, we want to see our city transformed, right? That's why many of us are here together. is because we are big enough to dream and believe that, that the city can and will be transformed through the gospel through the good news of Jesus Christ and through God's spirit moving among us. And uh, uh, so we are diving into this chapter today where we see an entire city repent and turn to God and be transformed. Ready? Let's pray and then we'll begin. God, I ask that you uh, do move in us this morning. We do recognize that there will never be transformation Uh, in our city if there's not transformation in our own hearts and in our own lives. And so we ask you first to convict us that you become real to us in a way that you uh, uh, have never been and uh, that you move us then outward into the city that we may love our neighbors and uh, that we may demonstrate your glory and your love to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jonah chapter 3 verse 1. And I want to start this by telling you a story. And by the way, my wife said I do this too much when I speak. So if you see me doing this, tell me to stop. Just be like, Joel, you're doing it again. You're doing the, the, the podium thing. So maybe we just need to get a pulpit. A big brown pulpit. Um, in 1968, my dad uh, went, he, he was 18 years old, uh, just out of high school, and he, he enrolled into Bob Jones University, which is a very conservative Christian college, if, you, if you're familiar with Bob Jones. Um, and uh, he, he was a smart guy, a lot of potential, and de- decided to go into uh, pre-med. Um, he was going to go into become a doctor and uh, was even considering becoming a missionary doctor. So going into pre-med at Bob Jones and medical school and then uh, going to the mission field somewhere 
and uh, being a doctor in, in, a, in a land that really needs good doctors. And um, throughout his year at Bob Jones University, um, he, be, he became disillusioned to some things, uh, mainly because he had a big fear that he was going to end up like the preacher boys at Bob Jones University. And he did not want to be a preacher boy. And I'm sure in 1968, um, the preacher boy was not the most um, exciting person to want to be um, around or, or become, as it is today. I, I know you guys all want to be like preacher boys today, right? I mean, that's, that's what I thought. Like, I want to be a preacher boy, because that's the cool thing. No. Anyway, he didn't want to be, be a preacher boy. So, so that actually led him then, after his year at Bob Jones, he convinced himself to not go back to that school and to enroll into uh, Ohio State University, which is near where uh, he grew up. And uh, so he enrolled into Ohio State. Go Buckeyes, right? Amen? Yeah. Um, and... Uh, and got into pre-med there at OSU. During his first year at Ohio State, uh, he be quickly became disillusioned now with faith altogether, just began to question the very core of our Christian faith, uh, which then, of course, led him to question the existence of God, which led him to um, probably some, somewhere between agnostic and atheist, and completely just uh, decided to walk away from the faith that uh, he once was um, part of and desiring to do something with, missionary doctor. Um, now that led him, his decision to turn away and to walk away during his year at Ohio State then led him uh, to be easily lured into what was then the mainstream hippie movement. Um, and also the drug culture and the party culture and alcohol. And so he was, he was lured away then by, by sort of that, um, dropped out of Ohio State, and for the next eight years of his life, he moved to Tucson, Arizona, and for the next eight years of his life, lived like the hippie life um, in, like, with, with other people, uh, drugs, free love. He, became, he was selling drugs, taking drugs from here to there, um, lived the hippie life, never went back to school, um, didn't think much about God. Uh, eight years later, he finally saw the light, realized that Tarshish, where he had run, was not as exciting as he thought it would be, that there's nothing in Tarshish to really keep him there. There's nothing in Tarshish worth staying for. And as a matter of fact, it's all just a loss. And, he, and so he realizes this. Eight years later, he reunites with who is now my mom. Um, you know that song, uh, I Can See Clearly Now the Rain Is Gone? I can see clearly now the rain, you know? Uh, so he wrote that to my, so, to my mom uh, in, a, in a little letter right after they, he kind of like, it all happened at one time, kind of came back to God, met my, or reunited with my mom, wrote her this song, because for him, the eight years of haze was finally lifted. And he said the sky was bluer, and it was just, life was just better. And he could see clearly, it's, it's the way he felt, so he, he, he liked that song, I guess. It's a great song. Um, but here's the reality is, uh, he met my mom, they got married right away. 11 months later, my oldest brother was born. And he now has to put food on the table 
and raise a family in Northeast Ohio uh, during the early 80s, and the job, job market in Northeast Ohio sucks in the early 80s. Um, he can't go back eight years and stay in, in pre-med and end up in medical school and become a doctor. He can't go back, repeat the whole thing, save up money, raise support, and go off and be a, a missionary somewhere. He can't do it. Look at Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You may have been, you, you may have made it to Tarshish. And you may have lived there for a year or five years or 10 years or more. And you may be, if you're really honest with yourself, um, you, you may admit that this haunting reality of uh, it being too late is upon you. You can't go back and do it over again. And you may have this nagging sort of fear that it's, it's really too late to do something with your life that is radical and that is countercultural and that is all about following Jesus. Um, my dad couldn't go back eight years. He couldn't do medical school. He couldn't, uh, at, at that time, go to the mission field or whatever that might be. He had to figure out how to buy baby food and diapers. Um, now, God gave Jonah a second chance. Um, and God will give you a second chance. God will give you a third chance. God will give you a fourth chance. God will give you a fifth chance. Is anybody with me? God gave my dad a second chance. Uh, my dad, even though he had spent years in Tarshish, believed that God can do the impossible and believed that, that it is never too late to turn back to God and say, I completely give all of myself to you and I am ready to be used. Uh, my earliest memories of my family and my dad, uh, he could fix appliances and so uh, that's what he did. Uh, he got a job with Mo Montgomery Ward fixing appliances um, and then later worked for a small appliance repair company making very little. Uh, we grew up poor. Um, it was uh, the things that my friends could do were not even a question for me. I didn't even ever consider being able to do and have some of the things that they did and had. Uh, we lived in a house that was um, tiny. I'm trying to like look around the room to give you an idea. <laughs> I mean, like a part of this room, a small part of this room would be, have been our house with four kids and two adults in it. I uh, grew up sleeping on the couch with my sister. Um, we would pull out the couch every night in the living room, and that was my sister's and I, our, our, our bedroom. And we would sleep on the couch. And then one day, my youngest brother moved out of the little bedroom where he sh that he shared with my oldest brother. 
and we made this amazing like switch where he moved onto the couch with my sister and I was like able to move into the bedroom and uh, we bought these bunk beds and my grandpa cut them down so they would actually fit into the room and they were just as, a little bit longer than I was at the time which wasn't very long and uh, uh, that's the kind of life that I remember um, saving every penny that we could save um, but I don't, th I don't remember my childhood as a bad childhood at all. Actually, I would completely do it over again. I loved my childhood. I, I don't remember struggling uh, as a family. We, what we had was a, a father who had been to Tarshish, who had realized that there is nothing in Tarshish worth really living for, and who had accepted the call to follow Christ with every bit of the life that he has left and every bit of his resources and whatever he can do with his, whoever he can influence, he's going to take advantage of that and he is going to follow Christ. And he was a father who loved us enough to teach us and to point us to and to show us the love of our heavenly father. I've heard it said that the way you think of your heavenly father directly has to do with the way you think of your earthly father. So this is huge, men, dads to be and dads that are. Through his life demonstrated for us the love of, the heavenly, of our heavenly father. He was someone who uh, was honest about his trip to Tarshish, if you would. Like, I grew up knowing about the eight years of him working as... Uh, you know, doing, selling drugs or doing drugs or living however he lived as a hippie. Like, I knew about all that growing up. He was honest about his trip to Tarshish, yet he never once glorified it. Like, I rarely would ever see him talk about his past without tearing up. And I had friends' dads who I would, be, I would hang out at their house, and they also kind of went through the hippie movement and did that, the same kind of stuff. And they would talk about it, but I always kind of felt like they, they kind of were a little proud of it. They were a little proud of the stuff that they did. And granted, they don't want their kids to do that. But they would kind of talk, and they had a little bit, of, little bit of pride there. Not so with my dad. Like, he was, like, broken about it. Like, I grew up thinking he just completely wasted eight years of his life. It's not a question in my mind. And because of that... All four of his kids, not one of us has, has ever touched an illegal substance. And I believe that's because of the way that he shared his own story with us. Um, every one of us has been in school and has decided to try to do something with our life to, to bring glory uh, to God. Um, his oldest son is a pastor in uh, Florida who is restarting an, an old church that's dying in Florida. They've got 20 or 25 members left, and, and they called him to come and really restart the church. It's an extremely difficult work, but he's there pushing forward and being faithful to his call. Another one of his sons is a, a part-time worship uh, director. His, his daughter is a, is a nurse and, and a great mom and very involved in their church. And another one of his sons is planting a church in Baltimore, and he's the one that they're most worried about, I think. Um, <laughs> When uh, the church that I grew up in began to fall apart, in it was the early 90s, uh, we went from a couple hundred people down to about, I don't know, there was maybe 24 of us left, 20 of us. Uh, my parents taught me what perseverance means and what commitment to a local body means. 
they, they taught me that church is not about going to find a, to be entertained and to find a great program, but it's about a, it's about a family and it's about uh, sticking together and, and trying to understand what it means to love each other and to glorify God in the midst of that. And, they, and, and so as a volunteer and as the chairman of the deacons, he literally held this church together. If, if my family would have left, if my parents would have left, it would have fallen apart, I guarantee you. And my dad held this church together. Still today, he's currently leading them through another transition. Um, he has loved a woman for 33 years and continues to do so. Uh, he comes from a family of divorces. Um, he, he told me once when I was in high school that, uh, that he realized that somebody in his family, in, in our line, has to break this pattern of divorce. And he said, what I realized was that if I don't, then you have to. And I didn't want to have to pass that on to you to be the first to break this pattern. And so he told me that there was this point where he realized, like, I think everything in him, in him probably wanted to stick with the pattern. He realized that he couldn't love my mom enough. He couldn't love her anymore. And he said what he realized at that time was that he has to love God more. And when he loved God more, he began to love my mom with God's love, which was inhuman. Beyond the love that he could ever give her. And he passed that on to me, and I guarantee you that's why I'm married today. Because Jess and I have been through some things over the years that, that we should not have, we, we shouldn't be married today. We really shouldn't. Not, like, naturally speaking, we shouldn't be married today. But I had a dad who taught me that men don't leave their women and that they love their women with the kind of love that God has for them. See, I, I believe that generations make a difference. I heard Rick Warren once say that, um, that he, he's a fourth generation pastor. So four generations ago, uh, his great-great-grandfather, great-great-great-grandfather, uh, was sent to America by Charles Spurgeon to plant a church in America. And, and Rick Warren, who's you know pastor in California, megachurch, all that, is reaping the benefits of four generations of, of pastors. And then he said, he said some of you um, uh, don't necessarily have that kind of ha family heritage. And if you don't, he said, you are the first. You can be the first in your family. And my dad decided that even though he'd been to Tarshish and he, it's maybe too late to kind of go about the, the, the trip to Nineveh like he once felt called to and, and thought that Nineveh, the cult of Nineveh is still alive, it's still real, the cult to radically follow Christ is still there and he decided to live a countercultural kind of life and he is the first. And I can't imagine in three or four generations from now the kind of fruit that will, that will uh, be produced because of his decision to go to Nineveh. Um, I, that's, that's my introduction. <laughs> and I want to, I, I think that's an important story to start out with because I want you to know this, God isn't finished with any of you. I don't care what's happened. I don't care wh how long you've been in Nineveh or what you've, or in Tarshish or what you've done in Tarshish or 
God is not finished with you. Uh, a, a couple weeks ago, I was venting to my dad about somebody. Just, I was struggling, and this other person was struggling, and I was venting a little bit, and he said, Joel, never write people off. Never write people off. And um, that week, that person had a breakthrough, and I was like, ah, oh, gosh, I was about to write them off. <laughs> my dad knows that God has never written anyone off, and neither should we. There's transformation in your life that's possible, and there's transformation in this city that is possible. Amen? Amen. All right, let's get into the passage. Jonah chapter 3, verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. Now the builder of Nineveh, it's been, it's been said that, uh, that when he built the city of Nineveh, he wanted it to not only be the largest city ever built, it was bigger than Babylon, not only the largest city that's ever built, but he wanted it to be the biggest city humanly possible um, to be built. That wasn't proper English, but <laughs> the biggest city a human could ever build was his goal. 60 miles in circumference, it was a big city for the ancient world. Uh, it would require, as it says, a three-day journey to get around the city. So that means for Jonah to walk around the city walls from day one, to, from start to finish, to proclaim this message, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. It would take him three days just to walk around the city. And remember, this is before Twitter and Facebook. Like, can you, can you guys remember uh, before Facebook? Weird. Some of you probably weren't born yet. Um, when was Facebook? Nah, I guess you guys were all born. Um, but this is before like mass communication was really possible. And so that means for him to get out this message, he didn't have a megaphone or uh, he didn't have a sound system to get out this message. He literally had to yell it loud enough for everybody in the city to hear. And, and it's anywhere between 120,000 to probably a half a million. Some people believe it's uh, five to 600,000 people that lived in Nineveh at the time. So he had to scream this message walking all the way around the city uh, yelling, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overturned. 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Now, day one, he, he starts out on his journey and he starts screaming out this message. 40 days, 40 days. And uh, look at the response. Verse 4, on the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the least to the greatest put on sackcloth. Their repentance was immediate. On the first day, it happened. Boom. As if God was just waiting for Jonah to obey. Go figure. 
the Ninevites respond with repentance. And repentance is first seen inward and then it's seen outward. As we talked about last week, repentance, Matthew 3, 8 says, bear the, the fruit of repentance, which means what? It means fruit comes after repentance. Fruit is the outworking of repentance. So just doing, quote unquote, doing what God wants you to do, just working is not repentance in and of itself. It's turning to God. It's believing in God. And then there's fruit that comes as a result of that. So we see that here demonstrated in two ways. One with Nineveh. We see the Ninevites um, uh, in verse, verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. And the Hebrew scholars would tell you that, that, means, that a better way to translate that would be believed in God. So that means that they believed first that there was a God. And then they believed that this God that Jonah was referring to, that Jonah's screaming about, is the one true God. And so they then believed in that God, the creator God, you could say. They put their faith into God. And then as a result of their, uh, as a result of their faith came, came fruit. John Gill, theologian, says uh, that, that faith came by hearing the word preached. And that was the spring of true repentance and the root of all good works. And then we see their outward manifestation of this repentance, which is they, they, they declare a fast. They stripped off their fine linens and they put on sackcloth, which is this traditional sign of just mourning and repentance and brokenness. Um, the, the, the king, when he hears it, uh, look at verse 6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered him with sackcloth and sat down in the dust then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let, uh, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and, uh, and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The king exchanges his his purple and gold and gems for the simple rough sackcloth. And he change, exchanges his throne for ashes in his repentance. This is like the humblest thing he could possibly do as he recognizes that he, as the leader of these people, has been leading them away from the creator God that he is now believing in. And he goes beyond everyone else and it demonstrates this kind of humility in the deepest way. Now, we also see this with Jonah, this kind of repentance and then fruit. Um, Jonah repented, turned to God. His face was turned to God where? In the belly of a fish. Now, could Jonah actually do anything in that moment? We talked about this last week. He couldn't do anything. He was stuck in the belly of the fish, and frankly, he didn't know if he would ever get out. He had no clue. He might still die there. But even though he can't do what God wanted him to do, even though he can't actually do anything, he turned his heart to God. And, he, and for him that meant recognizing that God is his authority, that, that God can and will do anything he wants with Jonah. And so he then took himself off that authority seat and placed God in the authority as the authority of his life. Now, when the fish spit him up on dry land, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. What did he do? He went. He went. 
Now, if Jonah, if, when the word of the Lord came to him a second time, if Jonah would have said, ah, <laughs> um, I've kind of had it rough the last couple days. Um, I could see going to Nineveh. I could see that, I could see that really being a possibility in my life. Um, I think I just need to take some time for myself. I just need to gather, you know, I, I just need to gather my thoughts. Um, I probably just need to go to Tarshish for a little bit and hang out, <laughs> right? Like that's what half of us would have done, right? I mean, if we're honest. And if he would have done that, then we would know that he didn't really repent. Because repentance, true repentance, always brings about fruit. And so when the word of the Lord came to him a second time, it just wasn't even a thought. God is the authority now of my life. I have rightly placed him back in leadership. He is my true Lord, and I will do whatever he says. And so Jonah obeyed. And he went. Repentance always brings about fruit. And the fruit here in, that we're seeing in Jonah chapter 3 is that an entire city. Miraculous sweep of God's spirit comes over an entire city. And the entire city is transformed. We've got to wrap our minds around that because we don't believe that can actually happen. We don't really believe that hundreds of thousands of people could see the light, that their eyes could be open to the truth of Jesus Christ and, and experience his love in a way that they never have in the past. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring them upon them the destruction he threatened. We believe that God is big enough for this, right? We believe that God is big enough to transform our lives, to reawaken us to his glory and to his love. And if we believe that God is big enough to transform individuals, then we believe that God is big enough to transform entire cities because entire cities are individuals all put together in a big bunch, right? And God loves people. And there are 628,000, give or take a few, people in Baltimore. God loves Baltimore, right? There's a lot of God's love here. And we believe that God can and will transform lives. Grab people's hearts. Soften hearts. Reawaken faith that, that once was there. And what we're seeing here in, in Jonah is that Jonah was none other than the tool that God used to bring about his plan for Nineveh. Jonah was the tool that God used, the vessel that God used to bring about Nineveh. And remember, God could have used anyone. God didn't need Jonah. God pursued Jonah because God loved Jonah. And so this is actually a great gift to Jonah to be used in this way as God's tool. That God has chosen him to bring about change in Nineveh. This reminds me of Handy Manny. It's just coming to me. Have you seen Handy Manny? The Disney cartoon? You guys didn't have kids a couple years ago. I would come home at 9.30 from work when Jaden was about two to watch Handy Manny with her. 9.30 to 10. And uh, this is a completely a terrible illustration. He had a toolbox and all the tools talk. And the tool, th there's a fight one day about like one tool was just kind of upset because he wasn't getting used as much, you know? 
So, so then Manny, being the nice guy that he is, took that tool and used that tool. It was a screwdriver, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, <laughs> anyway, I wasn't planning, that's not in my notes even. It just, God just gave that to me. Just like, <laughs> bam. Um, it is a gift that Jonah has been chosen by God to be used to bring about the transformation of Nineveh. Um, God wasn't sitting on the edge of his seat, biting his nails, just wondering if Nineveh, the, the Ninevites are going to repent. When Jonah decided to run from God, God wasn't all up in a hizzy because, oh my gosh, now who am I going to get to go to Nineveh? Because I really like these Ninevites and I really want to see them repent and really worried about it, you know? And so then he kind of like sent these waves and stuff to try to get Jonah's attention. And uh, that was me like making waves right there. Whoosh, whoosh. Sent waves to get Jonah's attention. And then Jonah says, okay, I'll do it. And then Jonah goes as if God needs him and preaches to the city. And then there's God just waiting, hoping that they respond in the right way, hoping that the Ninevites get it and repent. Like we forget that it is God who brings about the fruit. God wasn't sitting on the edge of his seat, biting his nails, hoping the Ninevites respond in the right way. God did not want to bring destruction upon Nineveh. God had already decided in his beautiful understanding and sovereignty that, that he would not destroy Nineveh and the threat that he gave Jonah to carry to the city and to preach and to proclaim to the, to the city was going to be the very means that he would use to bring about the intended purposes for Nineveh and also for Jonah. And guys, we have to understand this. We've got to know that as we are ministering in our city, that it is God who brings about the fruit, not us. It wasn't because Jonah was such a great preacher. I mean, frankly, he probably had bleached skin from the stomach acids and smelled like fish. He probably was not attractive. And it wasn't Jonah that changed lives. It wasn't Jonah that brought about fruit. It was solely the work of God, and God simply used Jonah to bring about his intended purposes. Are you tracking with me here? Um, let me give you an example of, of this. First of all, our call in our city is not to change lives. It's not to bring about fruit. Our call in our city is to proclaim the love of Jesus Christ that we've seen demonstrated on the cross, God's love being poured out for us. To proclaim that in both the way, the way that we talk, what we speak about, the way that we preach, and also the way that we love each other. Like if we're not loving each other as a church in the, and, and, and the love of Christ is not seen among us, like after, after our gatherings and the way that we talk to each other and just dive into each other's lives and invite people into our homes for dinner and do life together, if we're not loving each other, if the world can't look at us and say, that's the love of Christ that I see, in that group, then we're missing it. So we are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in our words and also in the way that we love each other and in the way that we love our neighbors and in the way that we seek the transformation that we're going to seek and that we are seeking. 
but it is God that brings about the fruit. Uh, there was a man named John who uh, felt the call to, um, uh, my mind's going to go blank, Burkina, Burkina Faso, which is formerly Togo um, in sub-Sahara Africa. He felt, I, that, that was his Nineveh, you could say, and he, he felt the call there to go and to, to pronounce the, the love of God upon these people. Um, it was uh, the average temperature in Burkina Faso is 130 degrees. That means there are some days where it's hotter than that. That's the average temperature. At night, it would drop into the 110s, 115s. They had four hours of electricity a day, a generator that would run for four hours. That was it. No refrigerator, no lights, no AC, and no fans. At nighttime, it was so hot that he would drink, everybody that would come and visit him, you typically would drink a gallon and a half of water just to get through the night. And you would sweat it all out, and uh, you had to go to the, relieve yourself quite a bit throughout the night because of all the water you're drinking. And when you did, you had to grab a flashlight, click it on, because adder snakes would come through the mud house doors and there would be adder snakes all over your floor, and so the flashlight would scare the adders away, and they would kind of slide, slither on back out so you could go to the bathroom. If you didn't use the flashlight, you would get bit. Um, there was a lady who came for a short-term little trip and visited him while he was there. And she didn't use her flashlight, and she almost died after she was bit. Now, th this is the... This is his calling. This is his Nineveh. This is, the, this is where God, he felt God was calling him to go and, and to serve. And it was truly suffering for him. He, I mean, he's an American citizen. What is he doing over there, right? Um, and the work was very hard. They, there was no industry. They started, started like a metal shop to try to create some jobs. But he, he had very little to no influence in this village. A couple hundred people. It was one tribe. Um, Eight years went by, and they saw zero people, zero, come to know the love of Christ. After eight years of 130 degrees temperature, adder snakes, and four hours of electricity. Zero people. He uh, confided in a friend of mine one day after that eight years. He came over here to sort of on a furlough. And... Uh, told a friend of mine, like, I'm seeing thousands of people in Rwanda or hearing stories about thousands of people in Rwanda coming to Christ and like these massive revivals and great things. And he's like, I'm not seeing that. And, and he confided, I feel like a miserable failure. I feel like a complete failure. Because I'm out there and I'm, I'm doing what I think God wants me to do. Like, I really still feel this call. I I feel like a failure. But he returned after that eight years. He went back to Burkina Faso, not because he was having so much fun and seeing so many results, but because that's what obedience meant for him. That's where God was calling him, and he was driven by this desire to be faithful to, to, to his God. So faithfulness led him back to Burkina Faso. In year 11, he saw five people come to Christ. Five people. 
And then he formed this little, little church, if you would. And they began praying for the village, for the other people. It was uh, largely led by a, a witch doctor, the, the village was. They were very spiritist sort of um, in their understanding of the supernatural. And uh, this witch doctor was very opposed to John and very opposed to his work. And they began praying for him and for, for the entire village. In year 14, 14 years after first moving there and experiencing these harsh conditions, in year 14, the witch doctor came up to him and he said, my spirit is not like your spirit. You have the power. And he laid down his tools and burned them right there. And the entire village, a couple hundred people, that day came to Christ. Now, imagine if after eight years he said, I'm not seeing any fruit, I'm not seeing any change, I'm calling it quits. I'm going to Rwanda, because that's where they're seeing all the excitement. See, our call is to faithfulness. It's, it's, to, it's to obey the, the call of God on our life, to, to go to a people, to go to a city, whether that's in your own home or whether that's in your neighborhood or whether that's in the city limits, whatever that is, our call is to go, it's to, it's to proclaim the goodness and the love of God and it's to be faithful to that. Not too excited and puffed up when we see fruit and results and not discouraged when we don't because that's not our job. God brings about the fruit. Now, our city, as we I examine our own call to our city, um, is there a napkin up here? As we examine our call to our city, somebody spills and might as well be me, right? Um, we, we, we may not see transformation overnight. We, you know, Jonah came in, in day one, like, boom, God moved. That's the way God moved there. But there is story after story in the scriptures where God doesn't move in day one and where people are called to faithfulness and they're called to preach and they're called to live it out in very difficult circumstances. And we may not see transformation overnight. You in your own life may not see transformation overnight. But these sort of quote-unquote results are not the point. Obedience to God is the point. God is a sending God. That's what he does. He sends. Um, he's, he sent Jonah to Nineveh, and he's been sending people all through uh, the scriptures. In John chapter 10, you don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 10, Jesus is praying, and he looks to the Father, and, and he says, you, Father, have sent me into the world. The Father sent the Son. And then in John chapter 17, Jesus again prays to the Father. And he says, in the same way that you send me, send the believers. So, Father sent the Son into the world 
And then the believers, us, in the same way, are sent into the world. Now, how did the Father send the Son into the world? Was that? Through Mary. What was the mission? What was the purpose? To preach the gospel? What else? Keep coming. To lay down his life. To die. To abandon the glory of heaven and come into our neighborhood and to die. That men may be drawn to God. That the world may know God's love. Now, in the same way, we are sent into the world. What does that mean? That means we abandon the comforts of Israel and we don't run to Tarshish and we head to Nineveh. We abandon whatever it is that we're hanging on to and we come and we die. We give up our lives so that the world may know who God is. Now, does that mean that we physically die? It, it has for some. But my dad also told me that it's, it's much harder um, to die to your flesh and uh, to, to be a living sacrifice, if you would. Much harder than it is to actually die. It's very difficult to live your entire life and to be faithful to the call of Jesus Christ until you're 80 years old as a living sacrifice, constantly dying to yourself. That's, that's, that's difficult. That's Nineveh. And that is our call. Um, Jonah risked his life. This is a time when Israel was, was slaying their own prophets if they spoke up against them. Jonah risked his life going not to, not to Israel. Did I, did I say Nineveh? I just got tongue, I don't know. This is when Israel was slaying prophets. He left Israel and went to Nineveh, which was even more violent. I can't imagine the kind of fears that might have been going on in his head. Or maybe as he's walking through Nineveh proclaiming his message, maybe he was beyond the fear of death because he almost died. Uh, but I still would assume that he's probably just like cringing, just waiting for the knife to come into his back, right? Um, he risked his life and went to Nineveh that the world may know. My dad died to himself, died to his feelings and his natural wants to love a family and a wife and, and a church and to demonstrate the love of the Heavenly Father that the world may know. John in Burkina Faso left the comforts of the U.S. and moved to an extremely terrible condition to spread the love of God that the world may know. We as a church, love each other in a countercultural kind of way. That the world can look in and see our love for each other and say that's a picture of God's love. And we love then our neighbors. And we love 
the people around us and the kids that go to this school and the people that run this city in a countercultural way. And we serve like nobody's business that the world may know. We are, as Jesus was sent into the world, we are sent into the city and into our world um, to engage the skeptic, to care for the poor, to heal the broken, to sit with those that are mourning. For the sake, by the way, of 628,000 people that need to know the love of God. Do we truly believe that God can transform lives and therefore transform entire cities? Now, maybe, um, maybe you don't necessarily feel a call. Maybe you, you're not really uh, seeing fruit in your life. And if you were honest, you would say, I don't really necessarily feel a call. And maybe it's because you are not Jonah, but in all reality, you're Nineveh. And God hasn't called you because you truly don't yet understand the love of God through Christ poured out for you on the cross. In Luke chapter eleven thirty-two, 32, I just want to read this to you. Jesus confronts his entire generation, and this is how he confronts them. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented, the Ninevites repented, at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. He's referring to his generation of people who are uh, skeptics. They, they question everything. Um, they're, they're, they're questioning the message of, of Jesus Christ himself. And his, his word to them is, look. When you are on the day of your judgment, the men of Nineveh will stand up against you because they repented with just the word of Jonah. A couple words that Jonah said. This prophet who probably didn't look like much. They, they believed in God. And you have me. And you're turning the other way. One better than Jonah has arrived. And you're looking the other direction. Well, if I saw a miracle, or if I, if I saw the nails in his, nail prints in his hands, then I would believe. The men of Nineveh believed on the, with, with just the word of Jonah. And we have the testimony of the cross and the resurrection in 2,000 years of church history proclaiming the glory of God. It is time for us to turn our face to, to the cross. The time is now. Destruction is upon us, and it's very possible that God is using uh, this, this very message as the tool to, to wake you up, to awaken your heart to a new understanding and draw you to the cross, to the forgiveness of sins and, and life everlasting. Um, there was a lady in the community 
she, she's not part of the church here. She just lives in the neighborhood. And uh, she's um, just kind of quietly witnessed uh, us over the last two years or so as we've begun to grow and do things in the neighborhood. And um, she said to me yesterday, I, I ran into her and she said, um, the kind of stuff that you guys are doing as a church is so forward thinking. She said, if, if, if everybody else, if all the other established churches with resources and people and money, um, we're thinking or, uh, the way that you guys are, and we're doing the kind of stuff that you guys are doing or want to do, she said this entire, this entire neighborhood, this entire area would be, would be changed. And when she said that, I was like, oh, that's nice. You know, and like, I thanked her and, and um, walked away. And then afterwards, I was like, oh, gosh, like I, have, I could have had such a better response. <laughs> because that's not really true. And this is what I would say if, if I could talk to her again. And if she would, if I could just do that over, I would be like, I would say no. Um, if, if every one of us, if, if each church, including ours, really understood what it meant to be sent by God as Jesus was sent into the world to die, to give his life and to die for us, that the world may know the love of God. If, we, if all of us in this church and in all the churches around here, really understood that. And then we really like took that on ourselves and we said, we are going to be sent into the city in the same way that Christ was sent into this world. And then if the Spirit of God moved among people and convicted hearts and drew people to him, then this neighborhood would be changed. And the city would be changed. And guys, I believe that's possible. I believe that's possible. And it doesn't begin with pointing out at someone else and saying these are the problems in the city. It begins with pointing at ourselves and saying it starts right here. I'm going to allow the gospel to transform my life, to transform our community, and it is going to transform the entire city as a result. Let's pray. God, we do believe that you are worth risking everything for. Uh, you are worth every bit of our lives. You are good. You are holy. And as you sent the Son into the world uh, to die for our sins so that we may know your love and experience your love, so we have been sent into the world in the same way. And God, we want, we want to be used in that way. Even though we know that it's... Uh, it's challenging and it's, it's not glamorous. We want to be used in that way. We want to live a life that, that makes a difference and that matters and that counts. And God, as we believe that it is not our job to change lives, it is, uh, we, we couldn't bring about fruit even if we wanted to. We ask then that you move uh, in people's hearts across this city, in our own hearts, and that you will reawaken us uh, to the beauty of the cross. And we ask that your spirit spread like a wildfire across the city of Baltimore and through the world all around us so that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen.